1: We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
0: You heard her. Go subscribe. Well, it's June, and you know what that means. Summer reading season is upon us. If you like thrillers that require puzzles to solve and a good plot twist or three, pick up Mike Carlin's latest book, The Ruin of Souls, wherever books are sold. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Unquirking a Story, where we dig into the stories behind the story. And today, I'm happy to share my powerful conversation with Dr. Ann Basting about her latest book, The Creative Care Imagination Kit. Now, Ann is a recognized leader in transforming elder care, and that's something that I have a lot of heart for, for a number of reasons, but not the least of which is the fact that uh, my own mother, who I love dearly... Uh, is uh, living with some memory issues, and that's probably putting it lightly. If if Dad, if you're listening, you're probably saying, "Michael, I think you're underselling that one." Now, Dr. Basting's work is asking us to to really rethink and reframe how we think about engaging with people who live with dementia or other forms of memory loss. Now, if you know someone who lives with memory loss, um, uh, number one, you're not alone. <laughs> But you know that trying to treat memory loss like a disease to fix or, or something that could be improved is kind of like being stuck in L.A. traffic, you know, on the 405 or the 101 and just hoping that your screams to just get moving will all of a sudden, you know, part the highway like the Red Sea and have you sail on through to wherever you're going. You know, you know, it just doesn't work that way. I mean, you want it to work that way. And, and that's where I mean, isn't that where so much of our frustration comes from? You know, sitting with somebody who asks us, "What are we doing tonight? What time is it? Um, what did we do for dinner last night? What are we going to do today?" You know, getting those questions over and over and over again is frustrating, and you hope just by answering them again, or or maybe by answering them louder, <laughs> more forcefully. You know, I hope that maybe it'll just take hold this time. Maybe they'll just remember. Well, it really doesn't work that way. You know those pathways in in the brain, kind of like highways, um, are blocked. You know, they're blocked. And no matter what you do, you're not really going to unblock them, you know, if there's a biological basis for for the memory loss. You know, for example, the the neural pathways for short-term recall might just be blocked, right? Nothing you can do will open them up again. Now, Oftentimes, and, um, you know, this is sadly true, you know, people kind of give up on those with memory issues, you know, because why have a conversation with somebody who can't fully participate or participate in the way you want them to? Now, the thing is, we really have to redefine what participation means. And this is where Anne's new resource, the Creative Care Imagination Kit, really comes into play. At its core, it's a set of tools that can, you know, help us shift away from, you know, really focusing on what's been lost, you know, memory, to build on the remaining strengths inside the person. And those things can be creativity, um, you know, the ability to to think differently about things. And what really struck me was how Anne proposes using the core principles of improv, which is, you know, as, as somebody who who loves comedy and and has done stand-up comedy and has, has tried improv and is you know fascinated with the principles of improv, you know the, the main principle of improv is yes and, right? So there's no wrong answers, right? It's yes and and then you build on the response of someone else. And when you take a yes and mindset to somebody you know in a conversation with somebody who you know lives with memory loss, um, you can really engage with them, more than if you're just trying to have like a fact-based conversation. You know, it really is a tool that can help us create shared experiences and in a way kind of serve as the emotional glue that can bond us. You know, when I talk to my mom, you know, I I try not to engage her in, in, you know, just kind of factual-based conversations. You know, like, what did you do today? Or what did you have for dinner last night? Did you eat enough? You know, my mother god bless her she eats like a she eats like a bird um because she just won't remember you know she she and and that puts her in in a frustrating position and then it in turn puts me in a frustrating position so instead you know i try to take a, a little bit more of a storytelling approach what would you like to do today in a perfect world if you could do anything what would you like to do it takes a little bit of pressure off of off of her and and i gleaned some um Glean some new insight into my mother's uh into my mother's mind. It's just a it's it's a better way of um of communicating with her. And it's certainly less um less frustrating. So, you know, all this is to say, um, her creative care imagination kit really is a resource that can help us create shared experiences um with uh, with people. So here's the thing. All right, uh, if you know somebody in your life who is a friend, a family member, or a caretaker of somebody with memory issues, please consider picking up Dr. Ann Basting's Creative Care Imagination Kit. It will be available wherever books are sold on June 8th. And uh, while it is available, of course, at the big guy, right? The big guys, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, you know, maybe, maybe given where we are in uh, in, in the world um, and what we've just all been through, consider, please consider buying it from your local independently owned bookstore. Show them some love, and if you must buy it online, uh, it can be found at bookshop.org, and if you buy it there, proceeds will magically go to supporting local independent bookstores. Now I realize this was about a six-minute commercial for <laughs> for the book. Usually, I let my conversations with the author serve as uh, as the uh, the plug. However, this is a topic near and dear to my heart, and I uh, hope you're not uh, too uh, too upset by. Being hit over the head with a six-minute commercial for her latest book. Anyway, uh, you didn't you didn't come here though to listen to to me. You came here to listen to Doctor Ann Basting's story, which I've uncorked for you, and you can enjoy right about now.
1: Sure. Um, well, I am located at the moment. If I if I grabbed a rock and hefted it really hard, I, I might be able to get it into Lake Michigan. I am right in Milwaukee, um, across the street from Lake Michigan. So it's a beautiful spot. Um, summer is a beautiful time here. Um, I teach. I'm in the a professor in the English department at the University of Wisconsin Milwaukee. Been here for. 20 years or so, I think at this point, time time flies, time does slip. And um, I'm the founder of a nonprofit um, called Time Slips. You can find it at timeslips.org. And the mission is to bring meaning and joy to late life, particularly for people experiencing cognitive challenges like memory loss and dementia.
0: Yeah, no, I'm, I'm curious about this because, you know, when I hear... You know, about somebody who has a Ph.D. in English, I think, OK, writer, maybe Shakespearean scholar, um, you know, things along that lines. What got you interested in sort of later in life care and memory care and and what do you feel pulls you to you know that that specific calling?
1: It's so funny because that that is that's the sixty four thousand dollar question. And so when I wrote Creative Care, um, I the whole first section of the book is finding Creative Care. Like how the heck did I get here? Um, and and also just to clarify a little, I I have a my PhD is in theater studies. Uh, so I have been a creative writer and. Um, an enjoyer of the imagination and the arts of all kinds um, since I was a wee child, um, and I think it, it really offered me as a kid um, another world when the world of my peers and growing up was awkward or you know uncomfortable. You you can you can walk into the world of the imagination and it embraces you and and you can find whole new worlds there. Um, as I went on to study, I, um, really wanted, I was a writer and wanted to be a writer and, and theater artist as well, and started really realizing that I was writing a lot of older characters and, uh, once I wrote a play with four characters in their nineties who lived in a nursing home and (laughs) it was really warmly received. We had a great reading, but the the guy said, you know, there's no audience and there's, there's no actors for this. And I was like, really? So that, that compelled me into researching representations of age Um, sort of the scholar side of me was looking at that. What are the social roles that, older people are allowed to play or not allowed to play. When are they exited off the stage of life right before their time? Um, And then the creative side of me was looking at things like the senior theater movement, where older people suddenly freed from their work-a-life jobs were forming theater companies and performing, you know, Juliet for the first time at 87, right? And, And the power of taking on a new role in late life. So I, as I was writing about that, I was also wondering if these same tools could work for people with profound disabilities like, like Alzheimer's. So I did uh, volunteering and really found my way to improv, uh, bringing the tools of improvisation to people in a, in a locked unit of a nursing home that was pretty dire. Um, and if if transformation and joy and storytelling could erupt in a in a locked unit where people were really drugged heavily boy i tell you it can work anywhere and when i first found that that's when it just compelled i have to bring these tools to everyone i can
0: yeah i want i want to dig into that but but first i just want to share an observation i had as as you were talking and and just you know talking about you know, older people and what roles they're allowed to play. And, you know, there's no audience for, you know, a play with with four characters in their 90s. I spent most of my career in marketing, doing market research, you know, before I was writing novels and, and doing more creative things. Um, and in, in my role, I moderate interviews, focus groups all over the country um, you know, when, when we're allowed to travel and, and do these things in person. And, and it was funny, I was at, I was at a diner a couple of weeks ago and I, I was just, you know, people watching, which is what I tend to do when I'm eating alone. And there was an older man, he was probably in his eighties. He was a grandfather to a, an adult grandson who was sitting with him. And he was just sharing all these perspectives on life with this, with his grandson. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, this guy has so much wisdom, and, and he, was, he was going into stuff about his career. He was talking about his relationship with, you know, this child's grandmother um, and just all these observations. And I was sitting to myself wondering, when was the last time any of my clients asked me to interview anybody over 55? And that's usually the cutoff. It's, you know, we want to interview people 18 to 55, and then we don't listen to the opinions of, of anyone older than that. And I'm like, gosh, that is such a mistake.
1: And that's, um, that's 50 years of life. It's, <laughs> you well, know, it's,
0: it's not only 50 years of life, it's ignoring one of the fastest growing segments of our population, yep. which are, you know, I think, I think the people 85 plus, according to census data, fastest growing segment of the U S yep. population. And, yep. and they also have a fair amount of wealth. Not that I want to derail this conversation, but it's just, <laughs> it, it just, it just, it's just an observation I have. Like we talk about inclusivity a lot in, in marketing and advertising and, we kind of ignore like a really important element of inclusivity, which, which is age and it kind of transcends all the other things that you can be inclusive with.
1: Exactly. And I think, um, you know, there is natural cognitive changes that happen with aging and then there's more profound cognitive changes that happen. And um, I think, learning to live with dementia as a disease, as a, as a disability to be managed is the next threshold. That's, that's where we're gonna see uh, communities offering more support so people can stay at home. Um, the health sector is gonna start recognizing preventative support measures that people can live at home. Um, that older adults are viable and valuable citizens all the way through to the end, yeah. um, I, the big frameworks of sort of the valorization of youth and and productivity in this country, there's sort of a perfect storm to leave out that last fifty years of one's life, right? Um, because they're not seen in a product productivity framework, uh, even though, as you said, there's there's often quite a bit of wealth uh, in among older adults.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean one of the reasons why I was so curious to to talk with you um is, uh, and to be candid, my mother is eighty eight eighty seven years old. And her memory has been declining significantly, I'd say, over the past seven or so years. And it started in you know, in very small ways, um you know, where she couldn't remember the name of one of my friends or where somebody lived. And then, you know, it it's progressed now to the point where, She knows her long-term memory is so rock solid. She could tell you anything about the day I was born and my twin brother and how we were supposed to be a large baby girl and Um, (laughs) ha-ha. But she can't remember, you know, what are we doing tonight? What did we do last night? Um, What are we doing today? And, you know, unfortunately we're we're divided by geography. She's in Florida, we're in Connecticut, but I was visiting with them, you know, after being fully vaccinated a, a few weeks ago. And I could just see the emotional emotional toll it takes on my father because he's her primary caretaker. And, you know, she really can't function. She doesn't really know. I don't think she really understands that she has an issue with memory. But um, it is it is something that is hard for us to deal with because she was always sharp as a tack. Um, so, I, you know, I'm just curious as to, you know thinking about like how do we prevent ourselves from grieving over kind of what's been lost, you know, versus embracing whatever new possibilities that, that, that silver linings, we might be able to find with, um, with memory issues. Do you have a perspective on that?
1: I do because what you're also describing is what I've been experiencing in my own family, um, as well, very close to it. Um, and I think it's really hard, you know, grief, you're just going to feel it, you know, you can't avoid it. Um, and it's ambiguous loss, because the person is there. Um, but the 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 way you interacted with that person, the person that they were, is changing. Um, I think one of the things, um, as I was mentioning before, that there's part of the pain of this experience, too, is that Friends, friends are perplexed. Like they don't know how to be a friend anymore, you know. And so they they stop coming around, and that can be also really hard on the caregiver, um, who then feels like they're they're the last stand. They're they're the one keeping the situation going. Um, but you know, bringing tools to to friends, um, time slips worked with the philosophies of creative care to create a whole program called engagement parties, which, you know, we picked that name because it sounds fun, right? You want to go to an engagement party and learn these super simple techniques that um, you can invite a person into expression and relationship um, and be in people's company and be supportive so that friends and, and family members who might be far away and maybe the phone doesn't work so well anymore or, you know, you're not sure how to stay connected, you can use these techniques to really have meaningful conversations. And so the isolation doesn't have to be part of the experience of dementia. Um, Communities are offering more and more memory cafes, which are sort of social gatherings um, where, you know, now they're starting, they all went online during the pandemic as everything in the world did, but now people are starting to come out a lot of them are in libraries or, um, you know, in my neighborhood, there's one at a pub <laughs> where, the you know, maybe a dozen people living with memory loss and their care partners just gather for programming and they're often staffed by volunteers or maybe one staff member. Um, and it's often discussion-based or creative exercises because, you know, the, the example I give is that, you um, if you ask a person with memory loss, like your mother, one uh, specific, a question that has a specific word or a specific memory as an answer, they might not have access to it, right? Because that pathway in the brain might might be blocked. But if you shift over and you ask a question that's open-ended, that is a beautiful question is what we call them, um, There's, you just opened about a thousand pathways for those answers to travel and for that person to feel um, powerful and to have a sense of accomplishment that they can participate in the conversation rather than be shut down by that one expectation of an answer. Um, So it's really just opening up opportunities for them to express and meet you um, where you are together and, and share an expression. Um, you don't have to give up on memory. You're changing the framework to allow memories to emerge in new pathways.
0: That's 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 fantastic. That's because I think we we think of, you know, in in such a closed-ended way. You know, what are we doing today? What did we do last night? Mom, what where day we, is it? <laughs> what day is it? And or like my mother always asked me, you know, I, we have triplets. They're 19. They just finished their freshman year. Year in college, and she'll always ask me, you know, Michael, where are the kids going to school? And and she knows we've told her a hundred times. And I know that she can answer the question if 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 I don't let her get away with it almost. So then I my my attack is always to 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 ask her more open ended questions about you know what does she remember of of. You know where where the kids might be going to school or, or things like that. But what's a, what's a good example of of a question like you're talking about?
1: Well, um, you know the the imagination kit has fifteen of them that um, I'm right here um, that are used as prompts themselves. Um, so a, an example of that, <laughs> I did a little video of my mother and father playing with it when they opened it when it first arrived. And this was the question that he asked her, what advice do you wish someone had given you? And she paused for quite a while. And I was like, uh-oh, she she can't process this. And she goes, I'm afraid I was given an awful lot of advice. <laughs> I think I was given too much advice. And uh, it was just really lovely. And then he asked another one in here is um, how do you greet someone you love? And that's such a great question because there are ways you could do it without words, right? You can show it through movement, gesture, sound um, because sometimes words don't come at all, right? Um, On a given day or a moment. So those are the beautiful questions that are prompts themselves. Yeah. Um, there's also image prompts that we use to tell stories. Um, and, you know, the, I'm showing a picture right now of um, two penguins, right? And beautiful questions in that situation would just be, what, what do you want to call them? What do you want to name them? Let's give them a name. You can name them anything you want. There's no wrong answer. And uh, where do you want to say it takes place? Um, how did they meet each other? You know things like that that people with dementia have perfect access to that. Um, oftentimes people add songs and sounds and um, all the senses in the image. And um, the jour- there's a journal that comes with the kit so that you can write down the responses. Um, and you can share it with other family members so that they see that there's a possibility of this, um, that this is a way to engage and, and something playful that they can um, be proud of.
0: Yeah. yeah. One of the things that I, I've been encouraging my dad to do, um, because he's, you know, he again, primary caretaker, is, you know, my mother is a classically trained pianist. Wow. And I mean, could play anything just by hearing it once. I mean, I could hum... I did this once for her, I hummed like a Van Halen song, which she doesn't know Van (laughs) Halen from a home on the wall, but she was able to just like play it and, and not just like one note, you know, Yeah. rhythm, melody, harmony, like, like, so I, I encourage him. I'm like, dad, once a day, just encourage mom just to sit in front of the piano and just play. Um, Because I, I had a music teacher in high school who was also my theater teacher. Who, who who taught us um, she was give, just giving us a lesson in the importance of music and where music is kind of where musical memory is stored in the brain and from what I remember now I'm paraphrasing and this was 35 years ago but you know very you know it's a very deep part of the brain that is um, sort of resistant to things like dementia or injury so so the, the fact that she can still play, um, is something that we should encourage and, and something that could actually help her, you know, not only just, you know, so feel better cognitively, but just feel better emotionally. I would, I would think, but well, what's your, what's your take on that? I mean, what was, was my music teacher right about being able to access all those notes and scales and,
1: and melodies? Oliver Sacks of course has some great books about that. And, um, musicophilia and I, to me, in my rudimentary understanding, not a brain scientist, but um, the way that music is encoded is also very complex. There's a lot of different components to it that, you know, the rhythm and the, of of course, lyrics and um, all kinds of different things, patterns are very complexly encoded. And so it's, it's part of it is the complexity Mm -hmm. um, that, that is one of the last things to leave. Um, people have it almost all the way to the end. I I also um, would remember a moment where I was with a guitarist who um, was visiting a um, a woman in a nursing home here locally in Milwaukee, who would play for her, and um, she had been uh, Judy Garland's accompanist.
0: <laughs> wow!
1: And she just you know, when he would play right next to her and she could feel the music and, boy, she just came alive. And then she could sit down at the piano pretty late and, and just play, uh, even if she would tell you she couldn't. You know, if you put her fingers on the piano, it it's body memory. It's locked in the body itself. It's not conscious memory. Yeah. Um, but I think, too, that there's there's the people who play, um, and then there's the people who can appreciate and listen. Um, and, you know, music is also very tied in emotional memory. And so triggering people's emotions with, that are connected to certain songs, like maybe Van Halen's very emotional for you, but you know, when you were like teenage years bonding, this, this connection between memory, emotion and music, um, that those are going to be the songs that are super imprinted on us and release emotions all the way along, even if we're pretty advanced in dementia. Yeah. Um, And then there's the third component, which, you know, you can write song original music with people with dementia. I mean, a lot of the deep work that I do is, is about co-creation. You know, um, I've written original uh, plays, you know, written and staged with, People who were, live and work in nursing homes, um, and you know, one of them was a retelling of Homer's Odyssey, and one was a retelling of Peter Pan, and another was uh, a retelling of Little Women. You know, these iconic archetypal stories that people kind of feel the the plot lines of, and can participate all the way along.
0: Yeah, well, that, that that's fantastic. I mean, you just, you just mentioned emotion. Um, I was, I was introduced to somebody recently who runs an organization out of Los Angeles called comics on call and they, um, <laughs> have you, have you heard of them or have you, cause
1: I, I, I don't know if it's specifically that one, but I know that that um, there's a big there's a lot of movement of connecting people to isolated older adults and having them um, w- work with artists or with any you know, particular um, skill sets like like comedians as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I was I was uh, you know, I, I'm a uh, sort of amateur um, stand up comic and uh, a friend of mine in the Connecticut comedy community where I live. Um, you know, told me that she got involved over the pandemic with this organization, Comics on Call, and what they do is they, you know, sort of pair a comic up with, you know, somebody who's, you know, um, living with uh, dementia, Alzheimer's, and they just basically, you know, talk to them. This happened to be over, you know, Zoom because um, couldn't be in person, but but almost using humor. And, and improv, I know you mentioned improv before, as um, almost a therapeutic tool. Um, yep. And I'm curious as to, um, you know, your experiences with uh, any kind of yes and um, uh, techniques with with this uh, population.
1: You know, that's the core of it all because you're, you're accepting everything that's given to you and you're adding positively to it and often using humor um, and playfulness to engage a person who almost all of those things have been systematically wrung out of their lives. And so you can look at it for its therapeutic benefit. You can look at it as just bringing the person back into life, (laughs) right? We enjoy those things and those should be available to people as well. Um, I think the core of it where, you know, the very first time I walked into a locked unit and tried improvisation, um, just tore a picture of the Marlboro man out of a magazine and brought a big sketch pad and some markers and said, you know what? We don't remember so well. So let's make it up. (laughs) What do you you want to call this guy? You could say anything and I'll write it down. And it was Fred. Okay. Fred who? Fred Astaire. All right. We got Fred Astaire. Where is he? Oklahoma. And then Somebody lifted up their head and started singing the song from Oklahoma. Oh, yeah. Oklahoma. And then we just did it and repeated it wave after wave so that the story could build with additions through improvisation, adding, you know, is, is there a gesture there? Is there a sound there? Do you, you know, all those different things. Um, that's the root of improvisation when you say yes and to the moment, embrace who and where they are and really invite them into the creative, joyful process of, of being and imagining together.
0: How many people are you doing that with? How many people are participating at a time in a session like that?
1: You know, you can do it one-on-one. You can do it one-on-one. You can do it at home. Your dad could do it. Um, My dad does it with my mom. Um, Last summer during the pandemic, we trained 10 artists uh, in the technique to do what we call tele-stories. So doing it by phone with older adults um, who are isolated. We, you can do it in groups. Um, The size of the group is really dependent on the skill of the facilitator and how many kind of volunteers you have because the biggest issues are, can the person hear you? And can you hear their response? And when that starts breaking down, the group's getting too big. Um, cause you may have to walk over and say it directly into the person's ear, uh, depending on hearing issues. Uh, and if, if you can't, oftentimes these sessions, the facilitators are kind of frenetic, you know, running around like, wait, wait, too many answers. I can't write them down fast enough, you know, and that's part of the joy because, uh, they're kind of manipulating you in the puppet strings of the facilitator. So, right. uh, it's kind of fun.
0: Right. Well, I mean, of course, all of this is, is, um, you know, uh, our, our conversation today is brought, brought to us by or brought to everybody yeah. by, you know, the Creative Care Imagination Kit, a time slips engagement resource, which is uh, out today. Today being June 8th. Yep. How, how, did, how did you come up with the idea for this? I mean, obviously, this has been sort of a focus of yours and, and your writing for a while. But how did you come up with the idea for sort of this tangible kit?
1: I, you know, how many people had to ask me for it before I did it? It's <laughs> sort of the question. You know, I, these approaches, um, people kind of get it conceptually, but then they're like, just give me something so I can do it. I, I can't, you know, I just tore pictures out of magazines. And I, I would, in the training that we give people, we say, you know, you're going to know best what's going to work with the people you're working with. So we wouldn't give specific images. But over the years, people are like, I just, I can't, I can't, I don't have time to gather all this stuff, just put it together in a little box <laughs> and give me some, give me sample questions, walk me through the process. So, so we set out really on kind of a human centered design, you know, process, we're collaborating with family caregiver support groups and um, just put out, tried a bunch of different questions um, Andrew Morton in Detroit ran that project for time slips and he just did a fantastic job of trying out different images, which ones work best. So the kid is, is really that, um, the best, uh, 15 questions that we found and on the back, we have thoughtful actions. So people can kind of take those questions to the next step. Um, and then 15 images and then just. And, you know, I just, I'm a big believer in good design <laughs> and the the journal is just, it's pretty, you know, and there's not a lot in dementia that's pretty and makes you feel good as a, as a product. So I, that's what I wanted to create for people. It's blank. There's blank pages and, and lined pages. And then there's little inspiring quotes to kind of keep people going.
0: And who, who do you imagine is. Or are I should say the the target audience for this. So who who are the, you know the prospective buyers who should be thinking about uh, picking up the creative care imagination kit?
1: Anyone who's like, what do I do? <laughs> you know, what do I do? Uh, family caregivers. Um, if you if you know a family that's starting to experience like a friend of yours who's like, oh my gosh, I I heard Mike's parents are going through this. I want to give them a gift. That's positive and hopeful. Um, There aren't a lot of those out there. (laughs) And this is something I think that can be here. Have some joy, you know, um, home care workers, uh, I TV is really a babysitter. It's not about engagement. Yeah. And, um, this is about engagement and building relationship. Long-term care, people who work in long-term care, I think could use a lot of these. And my hope is actually eventually to kind of partner with artists and museums to have kind of different volumes of images that are, again, just beautiful and inspire creativity and connection.
0: So, I mean, I, I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but but the goal with something like this isn't or, or shouldn't be hey, how do I fix somebody or how do I make them better or how do I make their memory better? It's more how do I engage with them in a way that's going to be positive, productive, bring joy to them. Um, and, and maybe, you know, as, as a side effect, bring a little joy to the, the helper, the facilitator, the, the caretaker as well. Is that a fair thing to, to say?
1: You know, I, I talk about this as having, it's as though you're giving a pill to someone and the benefit is 360 degrees, right? It's, it's, it's changing the care relationship from filling, filling a loss to sharing in strength together and finding ways to laugh and experience joy together. Um, and that's just good for everyone. yeah uh, you can, you know, I start out Creative care, the book with a story about a woman who participated in this reimagining of Peter Pan. and on opening day, she was crying and 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 she had dementia. she was living in a nursing home. It's you know, a lot of people would see despair. and i I said, are you okay? are those happy tears? She goes, so happy. (laughs) And I think we're afraid to experience joy in these hard moments, but there really can be beauty in some of those really hard moments. And if we can get in there and open it up, you know, we can have meaningful moments all the way to the end.
0: Oh God, that's a beautiful story. I'm just getting choked up just like hearing that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, I remember I was in a, um, I went to high school and it, part of uh, our freshman year, freshman, sophomore year, they made us do volunteer work. Now that sounds funny, right? Because forcing somebody to volunteer, but that was, that was part of the requirements for our first two years. And I was assigned to a, um, a retirement home at St. Camilla's Health Center in Stamford, Connecticut. And, you know, I was struck by, um how lonely the residents were um and it was uh, it was very i mean it was very sad to me because uh you know we we uh, at the time my grandmother was living with us because she was experiencing dementia um just like my mother is um and i it was it was always interesting to me how they'd light up when i'd walk into the room now i i mean you know i wasn't anything to to look at <laughs> You know, I was this scrawny little freshman in high school who was who was very shy, um, you know, but it was almost like, hey, what 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 the residents were really looking for was interaction, any kind of interaction, because so often they're they're kind of put away. They're forgotten by their families. Of course, this, I'm, I'm I'm painting with a very broad brush right now, but this is just my experience. So. When I think of something like this, you know, this creative care imagination kit, I think of, wow, this really is got the potential to be, and it doesn't have the potential to be, it is, it is a powerful tool to bring positive engagement to to these people. So kudos to you for putting it together. This is, this is wonderful.
1: Well, and now, now for the next, which is culture change where every care home can be a cultural center, right? where they shift their mindset from just maintaining someone's physical health to really creating programming that is enlivening and that volunteer kid volunteers want to come every week to participate in. Cause it's just so darn interesting. You know, that's, That was what we saw with the Peter Pan project. We had local high school students who were like, "This is awesome!" (laughs) You know, they couldn't wait to come. And you know, one we had three members of the brass band from one of the high school um, nearby high schools at one of the nursing homes playing and leading the the kind of promenade through the care home as part of this play that we put on. It was just. You know, there's no reason, truly, once you open up that crack toward, yes, we can do this, we can imagine together, we can totally transform this.
0: Yes. Well, the, the book, as I mentioned before, is out today, The Creative Care Imagination Kit, a time slips engagement resource. And where, do you, where would you recommend um, all those people we were talking about before who should be, be considering buying this, where do you re- recommend that they pick it up?
1: You know, anywhere you, I like to say, anywhere you buy a book, <laughs> whatever you prefer buying a book, um, you know, it's, of course, it's on Amazon. Everything's on Amazon. Shocked by what's on Amazon. And then, but of course, the beautiful independent, you know, uh, online resource of bookshop.org. Or, you know, I have a beloved independent bookstore just about a mile down the road. And I, I go there and if they don't have it, I order it from them just to keep them going. So wherever you prefer to buy a book, you can, you can buy both the creative care, the book itself, and then the, the imagination kit as well.
0: Very good. Well, and did we cover everything that we need to cover? Anything else you'd like to say before we say goodbye?
1: I just think, you know, being creative is what makes us human. And, uh, we we need to be alive and human all the way to the end of our lives. So op- open that up for yourself as a caregiver and for the people you care for.
0: Well, I can't think of a better line to end on. Thank you very much, Anne.
1: Thank you.
0: Well, then, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Ann Basting. As a reminder, her book, The Creative Care Imagination Kit, will be available for sale on June 8th, and you can pick it up wherever books are sold including of course your local independently owned bookstore and bookshop.org now what i'm going to ask you to do next is very important to me anyway (laughs) please go to wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review and corking a story because that helps us get the word out to people who haven't discovered it yet and of course uh, if you're so inclined please subscribe to us as well so you stay up to date on all the latest episodes And should be you, It should be, and should you be curious about where you can find past episodes or become more familiar with my eight novels, please take a moment and visit MikeCarlin.com and have a look around. Help put some wins in the sales of my kids' college fund, as I like to say. Buy a book or two or eight. And now, for all the hardworking men, women, and dogs. Yes, there are dogs here at Uncorking a Story. This is Mike Carlin saying thanks for listening, and until next time.